This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your host, Radio Joe Hughes, and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. It's episode 709, and this week we welcome Andy Saul of Complex Claims Resolutions, we're going to talk about business interruption. If you have a business or part of a business, um, hopefully you'll never have to deal with this issue, but a lot of people do, and when they do, Andy's the man they call. Before we get started, let's thank our sponsors. They're the reason we can continue doing the show. Don't forget, after the show, we have afterthoughts.iaqradio.com, sponsored by First On Site. IAQ Radio Plus Marquee Sponsor is First On Site Property Restoration at firstonsite.com. IAQ Radio Association sponsors are ACGIH, the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists at acgih.org. AIHA, the American Industrial Hygiene Association at aiha.org. IICRC, the Institute for Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification at iicrc.org. The Restoration Industry Association, RIA, at restorationindustry.org. The Environmental Information Association, EIA, at eia-usa.org. IAQ Radio Industry Sponsors are Particles Plus at particlesplus.com. TSI Inc. at tsi.com. Tramex Meters at tramexmeters.com and Healthy Indoors Magazine at HealthyIndoors.com. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnik at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man. Hello, everyone. I'm sorry to report that no one identified Norway as the country with the most electric vehicles per capita and also the most charging stations per electric vehicle. Here's today's trivia question. Name the edible substance that spilled and was responsible for killing 21 people and injuring 150 more in Boston, Massachusetts, 104 years ago and more recently for devastating marine life in Honolulu, Hawaii in 2013. Back to you, Joe. Okay, Andrew Saul helps policyholders prepare, present, and defend their business interruption, business income claims, and has been doing so for more than 20 years. He has turned paltry claim offers and complete denials from insurance carriers into substantial claim settlements badly needed by his clients to rebuild their businesses. On social media, Andrew is known as the business interruption guy. Welcome, Andy, to IAQ Radio. Thank you. Glad to be here. Good to have you. Hey, I'm just curious, what kind of a background do you have, and how did that lead you into the business interruption world? Well, originally, I I grew up in uh, St. Paul, Minnesota. So (laughs) I grew up in St. Paul and... uh, Went off to college. I did my uh, MBA at Vanderbilt. And um, after that, I started working for, you know, like the consulting arm of some of the consult or uh, the accounting firms. And 
I started doing uh, litigation work, you know, where you do the loss profit analysis and then you write the report for the partner who basically serves as the uh, spokesmodel if they have to go to court. So I did that and enjoyed it, but there were a lot of parts of that I didn't like. And then one day they asked me to help out with a, uh, with an insurance claim. And it was, I, I just liked it because the, you know, you had a lot more contact with the business itself and uh, you had a lot more involvement with the people of the business. You learned how the business operated, um, what made it unique and how to really craft a story using the numbers and the words to, to tell that story. And kind of once I did that, I was hooked and I was like, okay, this is what I want to do. Interesting. Cliff? Yep, uh, for sure. Well, um, I guess according to FEMA, 40% of businesses fail after a disaster. Another 25% fail within one year. 90% fail within two years of being struck by a disaster. And that's according to the U.S. Small Business Administration. Uh, do you agree with those figures or do you have different ones? No, I don't have different ones. And uh, I mean, those are pretty depressing, actually. Yeah. I mean, doing what I do, I, I, I really never hope for repeat business. <laughs> you know, when I do somebody's claim, it's like, I hope I never have to work for you again. <laughs> and uh, I mean, that's exactly why. If you're facing those kind of odds with a, a dramatic uh catastrophic event in your business uh, once in a lifetime is more than enough. I'm curious, what, what are the most common types of business interruption claims you deal with? Oh, man. Um, I would say I don't like sprinklers. Sprinkler <laughs> systems, uh, they cause a lot of problems. Um, I I get a lot of those, and uh, that's that's pretty bad. Of course, there's always the hurricanes, and and now uh, Hawaii wildfires. Um, it really runs the gamut, but um, it just seems that if it's not like a natural disaster, it usually seems to be a, a sprinkler system. I'm curious, what about like um, cyber attacks? Is that considered a business interruption loss? Well, a cyber attack, I'm glad you brought that up because a cyber attack is often one of the uh, triggers listed in the property policy. And all that cyber coverage is is kind of new, but it can truly um, trigger a business interruption for sure. Interesting. So, yes, if you have a cyber attack and you're losing business, um, that's a business interruption. You know, when, when you and I first spoke, there was something that you said that, that really struck me, Andy. You know, you referred to business interruption as an invisible loss. What do you mean by that? Well, what happens is when something's damaged, a hotel or, or a restaurant, I mean, all the adjusters go out there and they look. They can see the damage. You can see the fallen, uh, you know, ceiling tiles. You can see what the fire did. You can see the watermarks on the side of the walls. So, I mean, it's very visible, okay? 
And a lot of these adjusters come from a contracting or a roofing background. And they're really good with their hands and they're really good with, you know, fixing stuff, right? So their first inclination is to really focus on that because it's obvious, you can see it. But with the business interruption, it's the invisible claim. It's the, um, the business that didn't happen, the customers that didn't order meals, the, the travelers that didn't stay in your hotel. And so that's why I call it the invisible claim. You know, going back to, you know, what I had asked you before about those statistics, you know, it would seem to me that particularly if people don't know how to submit the claim, don't submit the claim, don't submit the claim accurately and inclusively, that might be one of the reasons why these businesses are failing after disasters. Well, I I wholeheartedly agree, but let me explain it this way. You've got the box, which is the factory or the store or the motel or the hotel, right? You've got the physical box, but the business itself, I, I, I view the business as an actual member of the family, okay? Because it's the business itself that generates the cash and the income to pay for the box, okay? It pays for the structure, but it also pays for all of the employees. It also generates money for the, uh, for the owner to be able to buy groceries and pay their mortgage and send their kids to college. So a business interruption oftentimes can be much larger than just repairing the box or the hotel or the factory, what I call the box. Andy, go ahead. No, I I was thinking, you know, just, just on, on that point, Um, but they don't necessarily see it either. And it kind of goes back to that invisible concept that you have because uh, you know, they have this box and they see, uh, damage to their, you know, expensive furnishings and remodeling and build outs and, and so on and so forth. They don't necessarily realize all the hidden costs. And, you know, it's just like uh, when we're handling, you know, one of these claims, we're dealing, you know, with, with the property and, you know, we give someone a list and, you know, here, write everything down that's damaged. And right. I mean, they, they can't even remember you know, after, no. after, after it's burnt, you know, like what was everything in the kitchen and so on and so forth. So I, I would imagine that a lot of these people must forget different things that, that should be included. And the insurance company doesn't remind them or give them a list and say, you know, how much are any of these things, correct? Yeah, exactly true. And, and it, it's, if they don't do the claim, if they don't prepare the claim, this is a little bit what we were talking about before the show. If, if you do nothing, they're going to have an adjuster come in, a, a company adjuster, what they call an independent adjuster or a, a uh, you know, general adjuster. And all of those terms refer to people that derive their income from the insurance side of the equation. So what that means is, and the same is in business interruption. If, if they don't have somebody that they're paying to help them to be on their side, like a public adjuster, like somebody like me to actually prepare their claim, the insurance company will do it because they need documentation 
for their reinsurer. They need documentation to demonstrate why are they paying out this money. So, you know, it, it's going to get done. It's just a matter of who's going to do it. If the insurance company does it, that's fine. But you have to be aware of that's the entity that actually owes you your claim money. So if they owe you their claim money, are you comfortable with them making the determination as to how much they're willing to pay you? And that is in its essence what it comes down to. Because, you know, I, I actually had one restaurant claim where I was against a, uh, an insurance company hired and paid by the insurance company. Well, they all are indirectly or directly. But this guy was an actual insurance company employee. We sat down, we did the claim. We were $500 apart at the end of it. And I just looked at him and he looked at me and we said, okay, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll take the, the discount of 250. You take the premium of $250 and we're done. And that was like one of the easiest claims I ever had. Now, it doesn't always work that way, but that's why you have, it's important to have the, the two sides looking at this because I'm looking at it from the policyholder's perspective, okay? It's not a money grab. It's, this is their business. I've spent time speaking with them. I understand how it works. I understand why is this business different than the one across the street or, or down the street. And so I put together a very careful claim to demonstrate that and explain that. And, you know, that's part of the point of sitting down across from the insurance company and saying, did you know that this is the only motel in this area that actually allows smoking? Did you know that although it was during COVID, this building that the guy had was very popular because offshore oil workers were having to quarantine and they wanted a place where they could smoke indoors in the winter in Dallas. And, and it's stuff like that, that if you can make that case and you can explain that, um, you're never going to get everything that you think you should or, or as much as, as you really think it's worth. But boy, that can sure take you from zero to a quarter of a million million dollars pretty quickly. So... Yeah. No, no, it would seem that experience in doing this, you know, the, the more often you do it, the, the, you know, the better you get. And I would think that the first inclination of someone who, you know, suffered this type of loss and, you know, was faced with business interruption, you know, might think about, well, you know, why can't my accountant uh, handle it and so on and so forth. And, uh, um, I, you know, that was probably the first thought that comes to mind. And I guess you've had experience with uh, people that have had their accountants uh, look at it and probably uh, forgot a few things. Well, I'll give you an example, okay? Um, the first thing I will say is empathy, okay? Because when I get involved, like I said, I treat these businesses like they're a member of the family because they essentially are. Um, if, if they're not operating, they can't pay the groceries, the mortgage, the tuitions and all that. And it's like losing the breadwinner of the family with, you know, if you don't have life insurance, you're kind of screwed. 
So when I get involved in these things, I've got a lot of empathy for these people because I know how hard it is to get to where they are at the point when they have these dramatic losses. And so that's number one. Number two is, I, I do agree. I, I do think the experience is important. And an example I'll give is, is this. Um, if I had a roof leak, okay? It might be just a really small little deal. You know what? There is no way in heck I'm getting up on a 40 foot ladder and replacing a shingle. Because I know that sounds crazy, but look, I don't know the difference between a three tab and a four tab shingle. I don't know what kind of shingle I need. I don't know what kind of nails. Maybe they're galvanized stainless steel. I have no idea. So why am I going to take a risk on something that everybody says, oh, it's really simple. And guess what? I think I've done a good job, but I don't go up in my attic every week. I mean, what happens if three months later, all of a sudden eh, everything's falling down and I, I've got this huge, you know, wood rot and I don't know what to do. And then I think, oh, yeah, that's because I fixed the shingle myself. Um, but I mean, that's that's my thought process. That's how I would look at something. Are, are there any particular perils in a policy, you know, general policies that business erupt, interruption would not apply to? Ooh. Well, I mean, they're, they're the usual exclusions. Like, for example, most recently, they, they determined that COVID was not one of the perils that it applied to. So, you know, unfortunately, that was uh, a big one. And they hadn't really thought about that. Um, that's one that comes to mind right now. I've got a little small construction company and, you know, of course we have insurance and, um, but I don't know quite frankly, whether there's business interruption is a part of that policy or not. Is that something my insurance agent should have told me up front, or is it something separate that I would need to purchase separately or add on to the existing policy? How does that work? Well, it, it's, um, generally a part of the policy um it's generally a part of the property policy if it's not in there it's not in there and that's not good but you know i don't sell insurance i'm just the guy that uses it and okay. because i use it all the time um it, it's i know what the good ones are you know i know what's going to help you and what is it you can't ask me about a general property policy because I don't do that, but I do um, business interruption all day, every day. So I can look at that, you know, two or three page section and say, yeah, that's, that's pretty good coverage. Or I look at it and say, who sold you this? But I think it's my understanding is that it's up to both the, the business owner and the, uh, the uh, agent or broker to, to set the terms of the policy. Yeah. Cliff, okay. yeah, when you're looking at that policy, the, those two or three pages, Andy, is there a limit to this? Is there a limit, you know, a, a total amount, a, a limit to business interruption? You know, sometimes, sometimes there is. Sometimes they will say that 
you know, for, for certain types of like mechanical breakdown, they set a limit at 250,000. Or sometimes they say in total, we won't pay more than X. Um, a lot of policies say that it's ALS, which means actual loss sustained, which means that in all cases, you have to demonstrate what the loss is, but the actual loss sustained doesn't have a, a set dollar limit on it. Um, I, I think, you know, they have an idea of how much your business should do. And that's, um, that's kind of how it's determined during the underwriting process. Um, what are some of the common errors that, you know, policyholders or accountants uh, would make when trying to assemble a business interruption claim? You know, what, what sort of things might be overlooked? The first thing is, if they don't have financial statements, it makes it really difficult to do the claim. Um, you need financial statements. That, that really is the first thing. Um, the second thing that's really helpful that a lot of people don't do is the minute that you, you've had an interruption or something has happened, you have to take, or it's helpful if you uh, create a separate general ledger account where you put all of the expenses for um, anything uh, loss related in there. So it's very easy to pull that out of your financial statements. Um, those are two things. Um, the other thing that they do is, as, as you kind of uh, uh, alluded to, Cliff, is that they think, oh, my accountant can do this. My accountant can handle this. And oftentimes it just doesn't go well. Um, there's kind of a certain format. There's a certain way you look at things. Um, I know how the uh, accountant for the insurance company is going to come back at you and, and uh, try and uh, uh, refute what you're saying and poke holes in what you've done. So the third thing really is, too, that they just wait too long. Um, I know that it's an ongoing claim, you know, like on day one they're not going to pay all your business interruption because they don't know how long the interruption is going to last. So, I mean, there's a certain element to that. You kind of have to see how the business comes back over time and you should see the loss being reduced in the calculation. But if you just wait a year and say, Oh, well, now I got to make a business interruption claim. It's, it's going to take all the, process of understanding the model and and um or the claim and uh arguing about whether that's an appropriate way to do it or what it says in the policy and all that kind of stuff you can do that at the same time the loss is continuing and the mistake i see most often is that people don't take that approach they just kind of wait a year and then say oh now i got to do my business income claim and then not only have you wasted all that time? Then you start at that point. Okay, well, what does the policy say? How does the coverage apply in this situation? How does the uh, the actual um, you know claim reflect that? And that's all stuff that can be going on at the same time the claim continues. Andy, I'm I'm just curious. Are there many other people that specialize in this area? There are. I mean, there, there are big firms that do this work. 
um, they primarily do it on behalf of the insurance carriers. Uh, the brokers, Aon, Willis, and Marsh, they all have a group of people like me that do the claims for um, their clients, their brokerage clients. Most of the small brokerages do not have anybody that does this work on behalf of the policyholder. There are a few independent people out me, like me out there working on behalf of the policyholder. Some of them focus uh, on the really large losses and there aren't very many that take kind of the mid-tier to smaller losses. And that's really where, uh, like I said, it, it, it's a passion because this is really where the, um, the entrepreneur and, and the business owner needs the most help. I mean, if you're Walmart, and one of your stores gets burned in a riot, it's like, yeah, that's an inconvenience and it's, it's a pain, but you have some of the best accounting staff in the world and then you hire a group out of Marsh, you know, like I used to be a part of those guys to come in and you get a team of three guys, four guys like me to do the claim and work with your accounting. And it's a pretty smooth process. But when you're an entrepreneur or you're a smaller business person, it's like you don't have the time to devote to all this stuff. Your staff doesn't have the time to devote to all this stuff. And that's kind of the niche that I'm in right now. What about public adjusters? Do they also do business interruption and how well are how good are they at it? Well, I I can answer some of that question, okay? Some of the largest public adjusting firms will have people on staff to prepare the claim, okay? To prepare the business income claim. Um, most do not. Most of the public adjusters will just try and negotiate it out. And I think that's a mistake because what they're doing a lot of times is they're saying, you give me a higher property number and I'll accept your BI number. And the reason I have a problem with that is if they're wanting to get more on the property, what that means is what they think is a fair estimate for the property, they're not even being paid on that. And then on the BI side of things, they're saying, okay, well, we'll take the insurance company calculation on that. And it's kind of like you're being shorted on two different fronts. Um, as far as how good these like uh, captive for lack of a better term, uh, people that do the business income for some of these large public adjusters. I don't know, because I, I haven't seen their work. Understood, understood. John, let's go to halftime. Thank our sponsors. Our marquee sponsor is First On Site, your trusted, full-service disaster recovery and property restoration company at firstonsite.com. Association sponsors are ACGIH, Advancing Careers of Professionals in Environmental Health, Industrial Hygiene, and Safety, Interested in Defining Their Science, ACGIH.org, AIHA, Healthy Workplaces, A Healthier World, AIHA.org, The Environmental Information Association, EIA's Multidisciplinary Membership, collects, generates, and disseminates information concerning environmental 
and occupational health hazards in the built environment at eia-usa.org. The IICRC, a nonprofit standards development and certifying body for the cleaning and restoration industry, IICRC.org. The Restoration Industry Association, the oldest and largest nonprofit professional trade association dedicated to providing leadership and promoting best practices through advocacy, standards, and professional qualifications for the restoration industry at restorationindustry.org. Industry sponsors are Particles Plus, feature-rich particle counters and air quality instrumentation. Count on us, particlesplus.com. TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for monitoring indoor air. Learn how to expand your IAQ investigations, tsi.com. Tramex Meters, developing modern dynamic moisture meters and humidity monitoring systems since 1974, tramexmeters.com. And Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online magazine for industry professionals and consumers, healthyindoors.com. All right, we're back with Andy Saul, the business interruption guy. Cliff, let me turn it over to you for the next question. Jeff, thanks, Jeff. Um, okay, Andy, um, what happens when a business's financial records uh, get destroyed? You know, you talked about the uh, you know profit and loss statement and so on and so forth, but um, you know if it's a cash type business and they have you know, a devastating fire or a devastating water loss and a lot of receipts and paperwork and, and stuff like that is destroyed, uh, you know, how would you, you know, handle it? Something like that, I would go back to bank statements and I would say, okay, <laughs> I've done this. Okay. Um, what you do is you get like two years of bank statements. The good news is that they're monthly, right? right. So... You can uh, see the deposits because that's their income, that's their revenue. And then everything that goes out on the bank statement or the credit card, you need to go through and understand what those are, what those vendors are. Is that, you know, that's your food vendor, that's your linen vendor, that's your cleaning. And then um, how much do you pay your employees? And you basically have to reconstruct as some sort of financial statement from the information that you have to work with. And it's hard and it's time consuming, but it's possible. Okay. So, you know, speaking about time consuming and, and difficulty, you know, on a restoration project, um, there are a lot of different skills that are utilized, some skills being higher than others. And insurance companies allow different rates uh, of billing for, you know, for instance, a carpenter versus or an electrician, you know, versus uh, a laborer and, 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 and so on and so forth. So when you do this, um, do you have, you know, and you have to use clerical people and, and, and so on and so forth. Do you do it all yourself or do you have, you know, some, uh, you know, clerical staff and so on and so forth that may be bill out at a, at a lower rate? Uh, you know, do some of those more laborious tasks? Well, I do. I do have um, some staff that I rely on to do uh, some of those tasks that you mm -hmm. talk about. But 
for simplicity, I just do a blended rate bill. Um, I just do one rate for all the work that's being done. And if, for example, like some of the clerical work or whatever um, is, is going too slow or it's taking too long, I just cut the number of hours. And the reason that I do, um, that I bill by the hour is because that way I don't have any interest in how big the number comes out to be. If this thing goes to appraisal or it goes to litigation and they, they take my, my model, by the way, when I send it to them, I send it to them in Excel. I don't just do some you know PDF sheets and send it to the other side and say, figure out my calculations. Um, I send them the whole thing. And then that way there's no concern that I'm trying to make the number big because I'm getting paid on a percentage of what I calculate. It doesn't work that way. But I do want to mention that I, I work for the policyholder. So in some of the policies, they have a specific, uh, they'll say claim preparation. So they'll have something in there for specifically claim preparation. If they don't, a lot of times they'll have in their professional fees. Well, I'm a professional and I'm going to charge you a fee. So it can be covered under that. Also, um, depending on how it's written, they have extra expenses, right? So these are expenses that you're incurring, but for the loss. And I've not found anybody out there that wants to do a business income claim just for fun, even though they haven't had a loss. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of like um, when I get pushback from, from the uh, policyholders, they're like, oh, man, we'll, we'll just wait and let the insurance company do it. And I said, yeah, you can do that. But you're giving up control. You're, you're not telling your story. They're going to come in. They're going to take numbers and cram it into a model that they've used a million times before. It's going to spit out an answer that they say is correct. And that's what you're going to live with. And I don't, I don't do it that way. I start basically with a blank canvas and a discussion with the business owner and try and understand how it actually works. And then how, how do I tell the story of the loss? And that really is the difference. And then when they say, well, but it's expensive. It's like, well, it's a lot better than zero or, you know, a much smaller number if mm -hmm. that's what they come up with. And then I tell them, by the way, you know, look in your policy. If you have claims preparation or you have professional fees or you have uh, even extra expense, uh, I, I've been paid under that before. You can uh, submit my invoice and be reimbursed for that expense. Andy, we've got a text. I want to kind of reword it a little. I don't know if you can answer it the way it is, but um, they're kind of asking what which insurance providers are best. Like, if I'm if I'm buying insurance, is there certain companies I should stay away from, or is it based on like looking for the cheapest policy or the people who sell a more expensive policy generally better at interruption, or is it um, something else I should be looking for in a carrier? Okay. Let me answer it this way. As far as the carrier goes, you want to make sure that the business income piece of your policy 
is solid and really well written for your business. And that's specific to the business. Things like, is it just business income or is it business income and continuing expenses, including payroll? Um, you have to understand that and know what works best for your situation. Um, the other thing, like I just mentioned with all the you know, claims preparation, if you can get it, get it. Um, make sure that the extra expenses are worded uh, in a way that doesn't just apply to mitigation or mitigating the loss. Um, the other thing are the professional fees. Make sure that there's coverage in there for people you need to hire, be they engineers or somebody to help with your business income claim like me, or people like that to actually help you put that claim package together. As far as the actual um, business income piece and negotiating it out with the carriers, that really comes down to the accounting firm the insurance company has hired. And even below that is who is the individual? I mean, there, there's some people on the other side that are really fantastic to work with. And then there's some others that, you know, it's just a job. And this is what the model says. So this is what the answer says. And I don't care what you have to say. And that honestly is the hardest part of my job because I can do a great claim. Okay. I really can. And I can have it be as defensible as possible. But the problem is I can't control what the insurance carrier is going to do. And if they just look at it and they say, sorry, the answer is zero. Well, then, you know, you've got to, you've got to move it up to, up the chain, you've got to go to appraisal or, or you've got to take it to a lawyer because I, I can't force them to pay. When you say go to appraisal, I, I'm not sure I understand exactly what that is. I'm not an insurance guy. So could you tell me what that what you mean by that? Well, appraisal is a situation where um, the insurance company accountant or accountant hired by the insurance company and myself and the policyholder we haven't been able to come to terms. They're unwilling to uh, see our side of the position. And we think that some of the stuff they're doing doesn't apply correctly to how the policy's written or how their calculation works. And when you're basically at a standstill, what happens is you can, if you have it in your policy, you can invoke the appraisal clause. And what that means is that, that sets a whole nother set of timelines. So you have a certain amount of time to agree on an umpire. So they would have to go out and find somebody to listen to both sides of the situation, review the documents and make a determination as to what the answer should be. And is there always an appraisal clause in these policies? I can't answer that because I mean, the ones I've dealt with, um, when I put it this way, when I've needed it, it's been there. But I don't know if all the policies have it. It's okay. common, Joe. It's very common. I think you touched on it a little bit, but maybe we should chat about it a little bit more. Uh, what's the difference between discontinued expenses and continuing expenses? And, you know, could you provide uh, you know, some examples? Okay. An example, for example, um, a continuing expense would be your mortgage. Even though your house burned down and you're not living in it, you still got to pay the mortgage. So 
that expense will continue. It doesn't matter what happened to the property, you still got to pay it. A discontinuing expense, if I'm to use that same example, would be electricity. You know, if your house burned down and you're not living in it, you wouldn't be um, paying for, you would disconnect the power. Okay. You know, you mentioned a house burning down, and I'm assuming this is a house that someone is operating a business out of or part of the house. Is that accurate? No, I just used the house example because it was uh, <laughs> pretty okay. pretty understandable to everybody. Everybody has one. How does that affect? I mean, like I've got a, a business running out of my home here. It probably takes up one, you know, one-fourth or one-fifth of the home. My house burns down. Um, do I can I try and get some business interruption uh coverage? That I think you kind of have to ask a, a, a broker or a um uh, an agent. I mean, I don't I don't have business interruption coverage, and the reason is because of this. When we were talking before we got on the 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 webinar here, I said something about, you know, hey. I might have the opportunity to go with my wife and work remotely somewhere for a month or two, okay, mm -hmm. due to both of our job situations coming up next year. Um, that, because I can do that, I think I, I really wouldn't want to pay for business interruption because if, if something happens to my place, I can set up in a hotel and do what I do from there. So I'm, I'm pretty mobile. And I think that just kind of depends on your situation. But for a lot of people, I think it's it's that's that's the kind of situation. If you're if you're doing a lot of stuff remotely over the internet and over the phone, you can just go somewhere else and do that. Okay, Cliff, is the insurance company? Um, I guess can you demand transparency if the insurance company has prepared? Uh, an offer based on, you know, on a business insurance offer, you know, they crammed it into their program and uh, so on and so forth. And this is the number that they came up with. Uh, can you demand transparency from them? You know, how did you, you know, how did you determine this? You know, what's in the numbers, you know, like yeah, your Excel spreadsheet, right? It depends. It depends on the company they hired. Sometimes I actually get the the spreadsheet that shows all the calculations Sometimes I just get, like I said, the, the PDF of the numbers, and then I have to back engineer everything and figure out what they're doing in their calculations. So it really kind of depends on, you know, what they're willing to do. I think, um, I mean, honestly, it's the harder they make it, the harder it is to recover, right? So if they make it more expensive and more time consuming, that's just harder on the policy. And what about when they make an offer? You know, um, I think a lot of people feel like they have to accept that offer or if they go to fight it, that's just going to make things tougher on them. Can you comment on that? Well, it depends on what they want to do. I mean, some business owners, by the time they get to me, they are so exhausted that they're just going to take the money and close the business. They're like, I, you know, whatever they're offering, I'm just going to take it and retire, which I think is sad. Um, but that's their decision. They're the policyholder. Then there are other business owners that are like, you know, I'm going to go to the mat because 
what they're doing is not right and I don't like their number and what do we have to do? Mm -hmm. So it really kind of depends on who you're dealing with and at what stage in their, you know, business or career they're in. All right, Cliff, I think maybe we'll go to the roundup and bring oh, in wait, the... Wait, I, I think... Before, um, okay, we can go to the roundup because I'll just ask you this my question. All right, the Restoration Global Watchdog is on the line, so we want to make sure we bring him in. Go ahead, John. also want to thank Tramex for their sponsorship. We appreciate you being on board and sponsoring the roundup. Uh, so I, I, I don't remember whether it was during the show or before the show, you asked me, uh, you know, how Andy and I met and, and, and so on and so forth. And, you know, what got my attention was that he was involved with a claim where I'm going to have him tell us about it. Uh, t- tell him about the, uh, uh, you, you know, the the, the um, chemical storage claim uh, leak that you had. I think it's very interesting. This was a, a tank farm out uh, in the ship channel, east side of Texas. And it's where they store a lot of jet fuel and kerosene, crude oil, all that kind of stuff. But the claim I was brought in on was for a tank of molasses, okay? And when the... Uh, the adjuster and uh, the accountant on the other side started calculating it. They didn't really understand that molasses is a food product, okay? And that it needs to be treated differently. You can't just take a hose off a kerosene tank and hook it up and empty the molasses out of one tank and then dump it into a kerosene tank that you just swished a little bit of water around inside. And The reason that I was able to get them a pretty good number was because I did the homework. I understood how the business worked. I knew this was molasses. I knew people would eat this in food products and it has to be treated differently. And I took the time and the energy to understand the business and tell their story as to, you know, hey, this is a, a, a tank that is not fungible. It's used for food. And that's really how it worked. And, and I, I think I think you ended up getting something like seven or eight times, I think, the amount of money that the insurance company came up with. Wasn't it? Yeah, it was about eight times. Yeah. Nice. Hey, that's a win. That's a victory every time, Andy. <laughs> but it, that was one where at least they didn't say zero. Right. Um, <laughs> the real wins, the real wins are the ones where they go in and they tell the business owner um, it's zero. And then I come in and, you know, I'm not going to get them eight or nine hundred thousand dollars, but I can get them a quarter of a million. Right. right and that's right. a lot better than zero. Right. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, let's I think we've got. Pete and Sigley. Go ahead, Pete. Yeah. Joe, you never lost me. I, I always was there, but I thought John was going to unmute me. And, I, and anyway, I unmuted myself when Cliff was asking. So can you hear me okay? Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, Andy, uh, interesting profession you have. Interesting you come from St. Paul. Uh, Cliff and me have a lot of good friends up there. One of them is a friend of the show, not with us anymore. And uh, right now, I'm, I'm probably about 50 miles from your alma mater. 
Oh, you're out in Portland. Which, which one? Are you in uh, Oregon or are you in uh, uh, Tennessee? Yeah, I'm in Tennessee. You said you were you were a, a, a Commodore, and yeah. anyway, the Vanderbilt. I'm not that far from there. I'm 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 on coming up to Nashville probably in about a half hour. I'm on Interstate 24. Uh, so listen, I got a couple of comments. The first thing is, um, where are lawyers involved in this process? Uh, I don't. Th I'm not talking about remediation or if there's a lawsuit, but. Do the lawyers, specifically tax attorneys who specialize in that, are they ever involved as part of preparing the claim? And who would they work for? How does that work? Talk about that, and then I have a couple other things. I've never worked with an attorney preparing the claim. What will usually happen is they'll they'll have a situation where something's going to litigation, and they need somebody to look over the claim. But in the actual preparation, I've not... I've not dealt with attorneys in the actual preparing the claim process. Okay. The one thing that you said, which I thought was good, when you talk about your fee structure and how some of that could be actually covered by the policy and relieve apprehension that the policyholder may have to hire you, I thought that was very good. I'm sure Cliff's going to put that in the blog. And the reason that that's important to our audience is that when you deal with the public adjusters in the property space, there's a lot of confusion there, or there's a lot of different models, whether they're working on a percent, whether they try to unduly increase the claim so that their fee is covered and there's enough money to fix the house. And there's always a lot of issues about that. So it seems to me the model that you use that's less problematic. Is is that an accurate statement? I think it is, and and I um, I just feel comfortable doing it that way. I mean, you have to understand. I don't get repeat business, right? So every claim <laughs> that I do, I want to make sure that this policyholder is happy with what I did, and that I did as much as I possibly could, because, like I said there's no repeat business. So I need people saying good things and recommending my work. I don't need people unhappy saying, you know, oh, this guy charged me $100,000. It's never anywhere close to that. But, the, you know, I was only ever able to recover 80. I mean, usually things, the recoveries are, you know, 50, 60 times what I charge them. So. Yeah, well, well, I mean, I, I think what's important is, is that not only in reality, but a perception that your fees are not coming off their settlement and no, the, with the way you talked about it. And, and that's important because oftentimes that's not the case in property. All right, uh, let me move on to the other thing. The other thing you said early on, you talked about who your customers were or who are the different people that you either work with or referred. And one of them, the name you called were restoration companies. So my question is, uh, how do you work with restoration companies? How do those fees work? Why would they call you? Um, and uh, in other words, how would they be a client versus the actual policyholder? How, how does that dynamic fit? Because that, that's the very, I think that's a very important point for our audience. Okay. And then particularly at the end of the show, if you're going to get some exposure, 
with our audience, uh, not just on the call, but through the blog. Yeah. That needs to be addressed mastered, and Cliff will, will put that in the comments if you give us something good on that. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, <laughs> I love restoration guys because they're the first guys on site, and they see if this is going to be just a catastrophe or whether it's just, uh, you know, half an hour with the wet back. Okay, so they really are first on site and they are some of the best sources of leads. Um, they would not be my client. The way it generally works is you've got restoration guys that, like me, are really trying to do the best they can for the insured. So when they see a situation, they're like, you know, you're already complaining about business interruption you need to call this guy and they, they just turn it over. And their motivation for doing that is they want to do the right thing for the policyholder. And they're also giving the policyholder everything that they got. Um, for example, on one of my claims recently, the fellow got his business was non-renewed by the uh, carrier and he didn't think his agent knew what he was doing. So I reached out to my network and found him two or three agents that could write his policy and get him a better policy uh, for after this loss. So I think it's, it's really more of a desire to do the right thing for the policyholder. And if, if I'm in a situation and somebody's having a bad time or they need a public adjuster or something, I'll reach out and find the best three guys that I can find and say, hey, call these people. So it, it's, it's more of a, uh, just a, a shared network type situation. It's nice yeah. and clean. Okay, well, I, yeah, that's a, that's a good answer. And I, I think that uh, I'm, I don't, I'm not going to go to the edge on any antitrust stuff. So I, I don't want to really talk about money and how that exchanges, but I can read between the lines because you said you, you work with the guys and the guys that call you are the ones that want to do the right thing for the claim. And it's not, it's not necessarily financially motivated. I think their payoff would be that the claim's more smooth and they can do their part of it, which is where they make their money. To me, that that's the best kind of referral, uh, word of mouth type of uh, relationship. So uh, it's good to know that. And uh, I think that... Um, Anyway, it was a good show. I think the information is, uh, you know, uh, very relevant. I think it'll be helpful to our audience. And, um, you know, good luck with it all. Uh, you know, next year, uh, the is having their convention in April. It's going to be in downtown Dallas. Of course, you're right there in Houston. You know, it's a little bit of a ride, but not too far. And uh, you ought to talk with Cliff, and you ought to see whether, uh, you know, maybe you'd, uh, you'd want to, Come on up, uh, figure out uh, some kind of, uh, you know, Cliff, uh, maybe you can have them at the IEQ radio show as you Then people can come by and they can ask questions and then he can go out to dinner with the boys and uh, we'll, we'll have the BI guy will be there. And uh, I think it's the 8th to the 10th of April in Hyatt in, in Dallas. You ought to tentatively put it on your calendar, Andy. And, okay. uh, you know, and uh, maybe you'll show up there because, you know, the IQ Radio has, uh, you know, they always have a little table there with a lot of other media people. And uh, anyway, uh, these stuff I think would be interesting to you. And we're going to be in a lost our state. So anyway, uh, 
Thanks very much. And I'll turn it back over to you, Joe and Cliff. Uh, great show, guys. Thanks. Thank you, Pete. Much appreciated. Cliff, do you have any, any other questions before we wrap it up with our usual finish? Um, I'm good. I do not. All right, Andy, I just want to um, – we always like to give our guests the last word. Anything we missed? Anything you'd like to add? Well, I just wanted to follow up on on kind of the last discussion, and it's I, I don't receive or pay referral fees. Maybe I'm naive. Maybe I'm, you know, <laughs> just out there. But I, I don't believe in that. I mean, if somebody refers me, that's great. Or if I refer somebody as. Uh, a good insurance agent or broker, I don't expect any compensation for that. I'm referring these people because I know them and they're going to do the right thing. Well, I, I think the value added by referring a customer to you is now I'm also working with a client who maybe has a little more peace of mind knowing that, you know, they're, they're not going to have to cover all these expenses themselves and that you're going to try and help them through this whole business interruption thing, which can, I, I can imagine can be really, uh, really tough on people, business owners. And uh, it just makes them a little more happy and a little easier to deal with in general. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, I want to thank Andy, uh, Andy Saul for joining us today. And um, we've got a couple other texts we'll get to you here in a moment here, but a uh, really interesting show on business interruption, the business interruption guy. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to this week's guest, Andy Saul, to my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick, to the uh, Restoration Global Watchdog, Pete Consigli. Always great to hear Pete's voice. Uh, of course, to our our sponsors and our, our audience, we appreciate it. We'll be back next Friday at noon with the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus. Thanks for having me. IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening.